A couple of years ago, I started a new season of my life and I started a new business. And because of that, I found myself walking into new places, places I'd never been before, uh, trying to build relationships and this network of partnerships. And I always showed up with gifts in hand, specifically cookies uh, to, to give. Because So I was trying to show up with something to give and trying to build these relationships. And some of the places that I walked into, I immediately felt welcomed. I immediately felt like, oh man, the cookie guy's here. Awesome. Great. And there were other places I walked in and I felt immediately like, uh, what do you want? Why are you here? The vibe was just totally different. And what I'm describing is something that most likely every one of us has felt, right? You've walked into a restaurant and they were ready for you and they ushered you to a table. Even if they didn't have a table at that moment, they greeted you and they took down your name so they could let you know when a table would be ready. And then there are other times you showed up at a restaurant and you're like, are they open? Did they forget to lock the door? Because it doesn't seem like anybody is here. They weren't prepared for you to be there. Or maybe you've experienced you walk into a place and you get the cold shoulder, like maybe the first time you met your in-laws or something along those lines, right? You walked in, you're like, I don't know if they want me here. What we hope is that at Faith Church, people walk in and they immediately experience a welcome. That They experience that we were expecting them because we've actually been praying that they would show up and that when they walk in, we feel like it's the beginning of this answer to prayer that God is doing in their lives. But I want to be careful. Because I don't want us to just think about the experience of walking into the church for the first time this morning when I talk about our culture. Because that's what I would refer to. I would would refer to the culture of a place as that feeling that you get. It's what you can't quite put into words, but you experience it. That even if people get up on the stage like we've already done this morning and tell you that you're welcome, but you don't feel welcome, it's a reflection of the real culture. I don't want us to just think about that experience of walking in for the first time. Because listen, we can easily fake that. We can easily turn on hospitality and being welcoming for about 20 minutes before 10 o'clock every Sunday morning. And that be all that it is. Just something that we turn on. Let me explain it uh, this way. Let's say someone shows up your house uh, this afternoon, this evening, and you weren't expecting them. And you remember while they're talking to you that you had planned this like weeks ago, but you had forgotten, right? At first, it might be pretty easy to act like, oh yeah, you're here, like we planned three weeks ago. This is great. I'm so glad you're here. Come on in. It would be easy to fake it at first, but it's going to get harder and harder and harder to fake it, right? Because as they come in, and you were in the middle of doing something and there's no food prepared, it's going to be obvious, oh, you, you forgot about this, didn't you? You weren't expecting me, were you? The culture of Faith Church might be most noticeable and most tangible when we first walk in the door, but it's something that will be most convincing and persuasive over the long haul. And we want the culture of Faith Church to be one that is loving, not just when people first experience a connection with us, but as they walk along with us and come to know Jesus. And that's hard. We all know that it's easier to say I love you than to live it out, right? 
It's easier to say I do than it is to live it out. And the culture of faith church can't be a culture of love that's merely a facade or a veneer that we paint over this exterior. It can't be plastic that's made to look like wood because it's wrapped or it's painted in just the right way. It's got to be real. It's got to be actual. We need that expression at the front door to merely be the overflow and the abundance of what's happening deep within our hearts and within our groups and in our discipleship groups and in our relationships. And that'll be the difference between being a welcoming church and being a loving church. That'll be the difference between you're welcome here and you belong here. That'll be the difference between it's great to see you And we love you. And I want to share with you today how we can have a real culture of love at Faith Church and 1 Corinthians 13. And as we start reading this passage, it might sound familiar to you because this is a passage that is read at many weddings. It's inside of greeting cards. And it's it's used all of the time because it's powerful and it's true. But beyond that, it's almost lyrical. It's poetic. And and Paul is this guy who's known for his logic and his argumentative style and rebukes and challenges. But here in chapter 13, he slips into poetry. And if you read a lot of Paul's writing, it's almost like the moment that like a, a rough, hard guy peels back his exterior and does something romantic. Right? That's what's happening here. And so Paul's chapter on love it's, it's powerful, it's true, it's poetic, and it's also a major contrast to the majority of his writings. The majority of his writings, all of his writings, promoted, pushed, powered by love. But here he kind of reaches this, this different plane. So let's read 1 Corinthians 13 together. And because it's so lyrical, we'll read the whole chapter. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Paul says, even if I was the most eloquent, even if I could speak multiple languages, even if I was endued with with power from on high by the Holy Spirit to speak in such a way that people hearing different languages at the same time would all be moved, even if I could speak like an angel, even if I had the voice like an angel, but I didn't have love, what it would sound like is brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Even if I understood everything about the Bible. Even if there was nothing in the Bible that when I read it, I was confused. Even if I had a faith that was so strong that it inspired and moved people and moved mountains. Even if I had all of that and I did not have love, I have nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Even if I was radically generous and gave away everything that I have, but I did it without love, it's meaningless. And then we shift into what is love like? And verse 4 tells us love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, 
thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abideth faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13. Powerful, powerful stuff. I want to tell you a story, and I'm pretty sure that when I tell you the story, most of you are going to think that I attended college in the Stone Age. But I attended a Baptist college, so that's pretty close to accurate. All right? When, when I went to college, if you weren't at work, you had to be in the dorms at 9. And there was a lights out time. Like, we were, chill, we were treated like children. Okay? And back then... Not everybody had a cell phone. Some of us had a cell phone, but you couldn't text on it. And you only had 250 minutes that you could use a month before the time of 9 p.m. And so cell phones, they were really rare, and you only had a few minutes. And so in our dorm rooms, we had a phone. And I don't mean a cell phone. I mean a phone that was plugged into a cord that went into a wall. Some of you might have seen these in a museum at some point before. <laughs> You would pick it up and you would push numbers on it and you would call people. And so to talk to your girlfriend over in the other dorm, you could use one of these phones, but they went out every time it rained. They were horrible. Cell phones were a luxury. You didn't have any minutes. And so they had put together this system where every night around 9.30, 9.45, there would be a container that people had dropped notes and letters and envelopes in, and they would carry that over to the girls' dorm, and they would drop it off, and they would pick up a container where girls had put these notes and envelopes in, and they would take them back. And they called this the Pony Express because it was like the Pony Express back in the day. And this is a way that you could communicate with your girlfriend, the person that you love, right? Now, I worked, and so Pony was what it became known as, shortened from Pony Express to Pony. Um, it often ran when I was at work. And I didn't have the opportunity to, to put something in the container. And you couldn't do it when you left at work, left for work for 2 p.m. because somebody would mess with that while you were gone. Because it was not secure. It was just a laundry basket sitting on a table, you know. So on nights that I was off from work, you better believe that I had better put something in that basket. Listen, there were couples that um, they sent pony every night. They sent messages every night. They were incredibly good at sending something in the Pony Express, and they didn't make it. Can you believe it? They are not together to this day. You see, the, the, real, the real point of it 
was not so much that the person would appreciate what you had written in it, they would, but they really, really appreciated that their name would be called out at the front of the dorm. Hey, there's something for you. Something cares, someone cares enough about you to have written this thing to you. It was this way to publicly express for everybody else in the dorm to know. Let me bring it into like the 20th century, okay? Sometimes you'll see like a couple just gushing over one another on Facebook, right? It's just this outward expression of love. And maybe, maybe it's a good thing, but sometimes I'm like, he's in trouble. Um, he, he is in big trouble and he is trying to make up for whatever boneheaded thing he did, right? There's this public expression of love. And it doesn't always match up with what is really happening in the heart. What's really happening between two people. At the opening of this passage, Paul states that it doesn't matter what gifts he possesses, what lengths of service he is willing to go to, if he doesn't have a love that is true and real, all of this is merely performance. All of this is banging a gong, a clashing cymbal. And when I hear those words, I think of being at an elementary school band recital and a kid's got cymbal and he crashes them at the wrong time. And that's a, that's a fitting illustration. But what they would have heard, what the Corinthians would have heard, is they would have thought of the pagan worship that happened all around them. Because in the pagan worship services, and when they would have their ceremonies, they would have these loud instruments that they would bang and they would hit a gong because they were trying to get their God's attention. You see, in their belief system, their God was distant and far from them. And for him to accept and appreciate their worship and to pour favor upon them and rain upon their crops and riches in their coffers, they had to get their God's attention. And once they had their God's attention, then they could perform this act, this ceremony that would win his favor. They were trying to get God's attention so that they could earn his love. There's a story in the Old Testament of Elijah having a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And Elijah, when it's his turn, he just prays a simple prayer, less than a hundred words, asking God. But for the prophets of Baal, they are screaming, they're yelling, they're dancing, they're cutting themselves because they're trying to get their God's attention. And Elijah says to them, I don't think your God can hear you. Maybe your God's gone on a vacation. Maybe your God's asleep. Maybe your God's in the bathroom. Yell louder. And he's mocking the fact that they're trying to get their God's attention. What Paul is saying is if we do all of this ministry work, and we're excellent in what we do, we communicate with excellence. We have the voice of an angel. We sing worship and everyone is amazed at what a great job we do. Our church has excellent in all of the programs that we do. If it isn't motivated by a transformed heart that is moved by God's love, we're just like banging cymbals trying to get God's attention, trying to earn His love, hoping that He notices us. Hoping that He pours favor on us. If that's us, we don't understand God. Because we don't need to get his attention. We don't need to win over his affections. He's already given it to us. He's already pointed all of the resources of heaven towards us. 
He has climbed through the ages to win us over. Listen, I love my kids. But I'm, I'm only able to take in so much information at a time. So there are times that my children have to say, Hey, Dad, Dad, watch this. Dad, watch this. Watch me do this thing I've done 3,000 times. Watch me do it one more time. They want my attention because I'm not able to put my attention on everything at once. They don't want me to be distracted. Listen, friend, God does not struggle with focus like I do or you do. He is not limited in his capacity to see what is going on in your life. When you see the news and there's all these horrible things happening around the world, it doesn't mean that God's attention is now diverted to more important matters. He knows what's happening in your life. Scripture tells us that a bird cannot fall out of a tree without him knowing that he knows the number of hairs that are on your head. God knows everything that's going on in your life. You don't need to win his attention over. You don't need to earn his affection. You don't need to to perform ministry excellently so that God notices you. He already sees you and he loves you. So let's not be a church that's trying to win God over. Because he's already head over heels in love with us. God isn't distracted. He doesn't have too much on his plate. He loves us. He's mindful of us. And I want our church to ooze that in our very culture. I want us to be a place where God's love is experienced at every turn. Now let me be careful here. Because I'm afraid that when you hear that I want our culture to ooze the love of God, that you're going to picture the Hollywood manufactured love that has been broadcast at us again and again and again. That you're going to picture the love story of two people who face horrible odds and end up together and then walk off into a CGI sunset as the credits roll. That's not what this is about. I want you to see the kind of love that Paul is talking about. I want you to see the type of love that is supposed to rule and create the culture of a church. I want you to see that it's not full of problems. It's not free of problems. It shows itself in the face of problems. It's not characterized by the absence of issues or imperfections. It's characterized by overcoming them and loving through them. What is it that Paul says in verse 4? He says, love suffers long and is kind. If all you know about Corinthians is chapter 13, you might think that it's a love letter. But if you read the rest of the book, you'll figure out that this is not a letter that Paul would send in the Pony Express at college to express his love. This is not some mushy spouse status update online. If you study the rest of this letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, you wouldn't characterize it as a love letter. You would characterize it as a letter of rebuke and correction, confrontation, challenge. Paul writes this letter to call them out. Doug Campbell lists a dozen problems in the Corinthian church that this letter addresses, including division among the people in chapter 1, 
incest in chapter 5, prostitution in chapter 6, adultery and divorce in chapter 7, lawsuits in chapter 6, idolatry in chapter 8, immodesty in chapter 11, chaos and competition in their worship services in chapter 14, classism and racism happening at the communal meal when they would come together to have communion in chapter 11, heresy in chapter 15. This is a letter addressing all types of problems in the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was a mess. When we preached through Corinthians years ago, I opened it up with a message that was something like Corinthians, the Jerry Springer show of the Bible. Because it was, it, was, it was a letter that covered all these problems. My friend, Ryan Golightly, he watched that sermon where we had posted on YouTube with the title, Corinthians, the Jerry Springer Show of the Bible. And he watched that, and when it ended, it immediately went into a Jerry Springer like highlight reel of fights that had happened. you know. But that's an appropriate illustration of what's happening in Corinth. It's a mess. Our culture thinks and our world tells us that confrontation only comes from a place of anger or rage and that it leads to violence like what we would see on those types of television shows. But this passage on love comes right in the middle of a letter of confrontation. Because the kind of love that courses through God's people is one that pushes us to confront one another. Not because we're mad with one another. Not because our feelings are hurt and we're going to try to hurt the other person. Not because I'm mad and I just got to say my piece. But rather a confrontation that isn't about me, but is about you. A confrontation that, that I'm entering into, not because I want to, I really don't want to. A confrontation I'm entering, not because I'm seeking my own, but because I'm seeking your good. It's the reason Paul says in verse 5, love does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It's not offended. It's not confronting because it's offended or because its feelings are hurt. It's confronting because it's what we're called to do so that we can become more like Jesus. Paul doesn't write this letter to the Corinthians because he's mad at them. He writes this letter to the Corinthians because he wants them to be more like Jesus. He wants them to be like him. The division that I talked about that he mentions in the very beginning of this letter, there were people in the church that were saying, I don't like Paul as much, I'm more of a Peter guy. It would be like people here in the church, and you're like, ah, I'm not really a Pastor Daniel guy, I'm more of a Pastor Dustin guy. I'm more of a Pastor Eric guy. That, that's, that's, my, that's my guy. That's the person that I follow. That's the person that I like. I don't really like those other guys. Can you imagine how easy it would be for Paul to be offended? Paul, the one who planted this church. Paul, the one who led many of these people to come to know Jesus. For them to say, you know, like, hey, Paul, I know that you shared the gospel with me, but I really like how Peter preaches a lot better. Apollos wears a lot cooler robes than you do. This confrontation isn't about Paul. He doesn't care if they're Team Peter or Apollos. He just wants to make sure that they're Team Jesus, that they're following him. It's a love that confronts, but it's unselfishly confronting. It's a love that confronts, but it's not because it's provoked. It's not seeking its own. It's a love that suffers long and remains kind. What kind of love is this? 
How can we possibly have that kind of love? How can our church possibly be ruled by that kind of love? How can we learn to have that kind of love? Tim Keller has rightly pointed out that really the only way to understand love, the only way that any of us learns how to love is for someone to come into our lives. Right? For some of you, this looked like when you were young and you made your first best friend. You met this person who, they get you and you get them. And you look forward to seeing them. And you were excited for school to start because you hadn't seen your friend. Or you look forward to seeing them on Sunday mornings because they're your friend. They're this person that is for you. And before you met them, you didn't even realize that you had this need for that person in your life. But now you realize it. And you learn from that relationship what you could not learn in a book or see in a movie. You understand that love only when a person comes into your life and shows you love and becomes the object of your love. For some of you, this is when a person came into your life and suddenly the whole trajectory of your life changed because you loved this person and you pursued them and you courted them and you wanted to get to know them and you would make yourself out to be a fool to be with them. You loved them and then you proposed and you committed your life to them. Now the person that you have built a a life with, a home with, and before you knew them and before you married them, you couldn't have understood the love that you feel right now. For some of you, it was when your child was born and you held that child and you came to know a capacity of love that you didn't know was possible. Your heart found another gear. It opened up a new wing. The only way to experience love It's for someone to come into our lives. And the only way to know this love, this transforming, life-giving, powerful love, is for Jesus to come into our lives. And surely that's what Paul is thinking of. Surely Paul is thinking of Jesus when he says, Love suffers long and is kind. Surely he's thinking of the one who suffered for us on the cross who suffered the shame and the indignity of being beaten and stripped, mocked and insulted, while he had all of the power of the universe at his disposal, and he hung there bleeding to death. He suffered long, and he remained kind and loving. And his final words were, Father, forgive them. Surely Paul is thinking of Jesus when he writes, Love bears all things, endures all things. He's thinking of Christ who has endured so much for us, who endured all of Paul's insults and all of his slights as he worked against the church until that moment that Jesus appears to Paul and says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul recognizes in that moment that all of these things that he's done to people, all these things that he's done to people in the church, that he's been doing them against Jesus. And yet, in spite of that, Jesus appears and shows him grace. Because Jesus loves with a love that bears all things, endures all things. And surely Paul is thinking of Jesus when he says, love never fails. Who can love us with a love that never fails? I have people in my life that I love. 
I love them so much. And I have failed them. I have fallen short. I've not been there for them. But Jesus never does that. He never fails. Some of you, you, you've experienced love in your family of origin and you experienced it with people who then walked away from you or turned on you or they abused you or they hurt you. They took advantage of you. Some of you experienced love with friends who you thought were your closest confidants and then they go and they tell secrets. They experienced love with a relationship with someone that you've committed your life to only to find that they are not committed to you. Some of you have known the love of loving a child who then rejects you. And for you this morning, to, the subject of love is, is hard, it's difficult because you have known love that fails. And you're afraid to experience any more love because you're waiting for it to fail you. Friend, Jesus provides you with a love that will never fail you. It lasts forever. What kind of love can make us truly let go of our self-interest to stop saying, look at me, look at me, pay attention to me, and to care for other people and to do for other people? What kind of love can, can fill our hearts so much that we no longer live our lives trying to get for ourselves and fill our own needs and wants because we're overflowing? What kind of love can do that? Only Jesus can do that. Only He can accomplish that. How do we have a culture of love at Faith Church that is more than a facade or a veneer? We experience the love of Jesus. And it overflows your heart and your heart and your heart and your heart. And when people walk in, it sloshes all over them because Jesus has poured so much love into us. And it's not because we're so loving, it's because we're so loved. It's not because we're so great, it's because he's so good. It's a love that never fails. Chris Hodges says, you can't create culture, you can only be it. In other words, you can't project the culture you want, you must possess it. You can't cast the culture, you can only carry it. A love that never fails, a culture of love that never fails, that's a tall order. And the only way it's possible in your home, in your marriage, in our church, is if it's Jesus who is the one that is providing that love. Only he can do that. Paul loved the Corinthians. He loved them so much that he did the hard work of going and sharing the gospel with him. He loved them so much that he did the hard work of writing this difficult letter to them. But Paul didn't write this so that they could know his love. He did this so that they could know God's love. Chandler doesn't need Faith Church's love. They need God's love. Because God's love will never fail. When everything else crumbles, when everything else falls, his love is the one thing that will remain. It never fails. It always remains. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.